1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Well, it is 2019, and that means that 50 years ago this summer, we landed on the moon. I mean, the collective we in terms of the United States of America. And uh, I remember that being an immensely big deal. I still remember being rather sick. I know I had a sore throat, could have been strep throat. All I know is I was pretty much down for the count. Uh, Nonetheless, I was still in front of the TV watching the landing and being just as inspired as pretty much everybody else. Well, when we think of space travel, some of us think purely in scientific terms, some in sociological terms, and some in spiritual terms. It just so happened that uh, not long ago, I was in an airport in Florida, and I ran into Professor Dina Weibel. Now, Dina is a longtime colleague, and we had a wonderful conversation about the work that she's doing right now, which involves spirituality and space travel. So, as we were conversing in the airport, I said, this sounds like a perfect conversation to be had on Common Threads. And so... She is here today. Let me tell you a little bit about Professor Weibel. She is a cultural anthropologist here at Grand Valley State University whose work focuses primarily on religion, especially the topics of pilgrimage and sacred space. Her main field work takes place in France at pilgrimage sites venerating the Virgin Mary. Other research interests include religious cognition, sacred objects, religion and space travel, as we just mentioned, and the role of anthropology and her own family in the ethnological displays of Philippine tribal peoples at fairs and carnivals in the 1900s. She is advising faculty for the Grand Valley State Religious Studies Program and a board member here at the Interfaith Dialogue Association. So we welcome Dina Weibel. Hi, Dina.
2: Hi, Fred. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's been a while.
1: Definitely. Um, so, tell us a bit about how you first translated space travel into a spiritual experience. When when did it hit you? After, uh, and I'm assuming that it, your work in pilgr- pilgrimage sites, especially in Europe, uh, uh, might have been a springboard.
2: Well, it was actually before I really got into anthropological research at all. In graduate school, when I was considering different topics, pilgrimage was one of them. I was very interested, especially in what it was like to be a community, living in a community that was next to a sacred place and how that affect how would, that would affect the community itself. Um, but I was always so very interested in sort of the religious lives of scientists. It has always seemed to me that Religion can be understood in a lot of different ways. But one way is that it offers a framework for understanding reality. So if you are coming through the world with a religious perspective, that provides kind of a lens for you to interpret what's going on around you. As you know, the scientific method also provides a lens. And I'm really interested in what happens when... Um, there's a combining of different lenses. So if you're seeing something from two perspectives at once, how does that work? Do you have to change your perspective, go back and forth? Is there a way to blend those perspectives? Do you abandon one of the perspectives in favor of the other? And um, I remember being in graduate school and actually writing to Ira Flato of Science Friday, asking him to do a program program. On the religious beliefs of astronauts. And he sent me a nice note back, and I don't know if they ever followed up on it. But that would have been in the mid-90s, I would think.
1: It's interesting, because um, I recently read something. It was written by a Muslim philosopher scholar <laughs> on the the so-called God particle, the mm-hmm. Higgs-Boson particle. And his his thesis is that the, the the Higgs boson is a fabulous discovery, but it's not the God particle. Right. And he is a theist, but he doesn't go, "Aha! We've discovered. We have guaranteed proof of God because we've got the God particle." And he's saying the people who do that are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And he gives plenty of great reasoning why. And he also states in there that the scientists who have been involved in the discovery of the Higgs boson the ones who were theists maintain being theists
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the ones who were not were not converted so you have this this bias going into uh, whatever research you're involved in, either, you know, theism or not, or or if not theism, at least some spiritual worldview, because mm-hmm. theism is a particular spiritual worldview, as we know. I'm wondering, after all of the interviews, all of the research that you have done, does that tend to be the case?
2: I would say for scientists whose work is connected to space exploration in an indirect way. So scientists who are not themselves going up into space. I do see something of a continuation of whatever belief system they started with. I have heard from quite a few scientists. I was at the NASA Human Research Program investigators workshop in Galveston, Texas, this past January, and did hear several stories from scientists who started out as religious kids mostly, in religious families, and told me sort of the story of them leaving religion behind. Um, Interestingly, when I was at the Vatican Observatory studying the Jesuit astronomers there in it's a section of Vatican City that's not in Vatican City, so it's kind of like, you know, an American embassy is considered American territory. Yes. In Castel Gandolfo, they have a section of Italy that's considered Vatican territory, and that's where the Pope's summer palace is and also where four observatories are and the whole setup for the Vatican observatory and the astronomers who work for them. And um, those, so, several of the Italian astronomers I spoke to had an interesting story where they started out coming from religious families, began to question their religious beliefs as they learned more about science, then reached out to other members of the clergy and were brought back into the fold, whereupon they became both Jesuits and PhDs in the sciences. And so that was an interesting kind of like two tracks of two different stories, the way it could turn out. But a lot of people who are religious and um, active in science and space exploration have definitely maintained their religious beliefs uh,
1: at the observatory. I want I want you to talk a little bit about your uh, experience there because I that was part of our conversation at the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you end up there? Oh, but uh, it sounds like a, a, it sounds like it would be a fun a, with big air quotes around it, but a cool place to be.
2: It was a very cool place to be. Um I got there through combining several interests and leveraging um human contacts, if that sounds kind of weird. But anyway. I get sh- it. <laughs> <laughs> the short version is one of the things I do here in Grand Rapids is I'm a co organizer of an event called Roger That which is an annual celebration of space exploration in honor of Grand Rapids native Roger B. Chaffee. He was killed in the Apollo 1 explosion, along with Gus Grissom and Ed White. But since he's a hometown boy, we decided to mark the 50th anniversary by doing that. Our One of our first speakers was Guy Consolmagno, who's currently the director of the Vatican Observatory. Um, he was sort of a friend of a friend of a couple friends. And so I was able to reach out to him, bring him here. He came and gave two talks for us during that event. And I maintained contact with him, eventually saying, you know, would it be possible for me to go out to the Vatican Observatory and do some ethnographic research as an anthropologist? And he first said, oh, sure, maybe about a week. As I kept contacting him and talking to him, that became four weeks. So um, I was there from mid-March to mid-April this past year.
1: And tell us what your daily life was usually like there.
2: Oh, um, one of the jokes that... Besides
1: shopping on Via Veneto. uh,
2: They weren't in Rome. So we were in kind of a small town. If anybody's familiar with Albano Laziale, that's kind of where we were. Um, next to this beautiful large lake, which is known either as Lake Albano or Lake Gandolfo, depending on which your alliance is there. And um, they have, it's a former convent. So the observatory used to be located on the palace grounds of the Pope's Summer Palace. The current Pope, Francis I, doesn't really use the Summer Palace. The old observatory was kind of creaky and built in you know the 1600s and so they moved them right around 2008 i believe to a former convent And it's a very modern building, mostly because the area was bombed out during World War II. The lower floors are the offices. looks a lot like visiting a university and the faculty offices. Each one of these guys, and um, they're all guys except for some adjuncts, have an office, they have a meteorite lab, they have a museum that's nearby, they have a lot of interesting displays, a classroom, um, and administrative offices. And on that same floor is an apartment for guests. And it can hold a lot more guests than one. Um, I was lucky. I was the only person interested in it for the time period. So I would literally get up in the morning, get some breakfast, and then they met every morning at 10 o'clock for cappuccino in the coffee room. And that would be the first part of the day. I would hang out in the library. I would be sometimes invited to eat with them, attend religious services with them. Um, A lot of times I was just going into their offices and talking to them about their research. Occasionally there would be a tour um, that they would do, um, either just for me or, for instance, a group from Cork, Ireland, came in, an astronomy group, to tour the observatory, and I tagged along on that. But it was mostly just what anthropologists call participant observation. You settle into a place and you spend time there doing what the locals do. I was occasionally invited upstairs, which is where their dormitories are. Not into the dormitories, but into the kitchen, into the dining room. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. (laughs) And um, they actually have sort of a game room on the top floor that they converted from an outdoor patio into an indoor um, place to sit and talk and play board games and things like that. So it's a very relaxed atmosphere. One of the jokes was, if this is poverty, I want to see what celibacy looks like. That wasn't my joke. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But they're doing some amazing Jesuits don't take
1: the vow of poverty. You Mm, probably found that
2: out. Jesuits are their own breed, definitely. Um, And they run a summer school every other year where they bring in—it's a completely secular summer school. They bring in students, no more than two from each country— and teach them astronomy with some of the great experts, such as, I can't think of her name right now, but the woman who discovered the concept of dark matter. She was one of their instructors.
1: And why does the Catholic Church have this wonderful observatory?
2: There are a couple stories. One of them, um, who's the vice director mentioned this to me, it's a nation state. And nations during the middle, you know, the medieval times, you had astronomers, and so if the king of England is going to have an astronomer, the Pope is going to have an astronomer. It was just kind of how it worked. That being said, it was sort of renovated and brought back right around the start of the 20th century again, um, sort of brought into more prominence. And one of the goals is just very directly to prove that science can be done alongside religious belief, that the two ideas are not incompatible, and in fact are incredibly compatible. And that's kind of a lot of the perspective that I obtained through these interviews was that science is what the Jesuits do. Catholicism has been the source of many amazing Catholic ideas. That there's it's ridiculous to think that science and religion are opposed because they're constantly doing real science, working on NASA projects, publishing in different papers, um, journal articles, books. they're proving that they can be priests and brothers and also scientists.
1: And so there are no lay members there, there everyone there is a priest.
2: There are well, there are a couple of them that are brothers, which means that they are Jesuits, but they haven't become priests. Understand. So um, they have to take the same vows, but they don't have the same rights and responsibilities. To right. It they don't way. say mass. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are adjunct members who are sometimes priests who aren't Jesuits. Actually, there's a regular one who's not a Jesuit, um, but... Th- I know some of the adjuncts are very religious Catholic professors from American universities, including women, for instance. And
1: and you would assume that being Catholic is a requirement to be a part of this?
2: I don't think they require you to be Catholic to do research there. Um, I know for sure that you, you don't have to be Catholic to do research there. But to have an official position, i thinking that everybody I met there was Catholic. And I'm going over in my mind who was listed on the adjunct um, list, and I didn't meet everybody, but the ones I did meet were Catholic.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Professor Dina Weibel. She's a professor of anthropology here at Grand Valley State University, and we're talking about spirituality and space. Um, one of the articles that you shared with me recounted a story I remember hearing years ago, um, and it had to do with uh, Yuri, the first cosmonaut, Mm -hmm. and a ritual that he started. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us about that. It's quite a fascinating story. Not just the fact that what he did in the establishment of a ritual, because he didn't know he was establishing a ritual, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it turned into a ritual
2: up to this day. Okay. Um, Yeah, this is a fun story, and people enjoy um, hearing about it. Yuri Gagarin, of course, as most of your listeners will know, was the first human being to go into space. And as probably most of us would be if we were going to be the first human to go into space, you get nervous, especially when you're on your way to the launching pad. He felt the call of nature, asked them to pull the bus over, got out of the bus, and relieved himself on the left back tire of the bus got back in, was launched into space, successful, yay, congratulations to everyone. One of the the article I shared with you was one in which um, Glenn Swanson, who was my co-author, and I were talking or evaluating the different ways that religion and a lack of religion might manifest in different space programs. The American space program has always had kind of a religious strain through it, Um, During the years of the Soviet Union, you weren't able to be openly religious as a member of the Soviet space program. This was, you know, under communism, where atheism was the order of the day. There have been some theories from anthropology that indicate when people have control over a situation, they just stick to science. But when they are in situations where control is a little dicey, there's some psychological anxiety happening. That's where people will turn to religion, to pray for guidance, for instance, to pray for help, to meditate. Um, But magical thinking is a similar idea where you are doing things to improve your situation that aren't necessarily rational. So getting back to Yuri, Yuri urinated um, on the back of the tire. The next cosmonaut to go up wanted to make sure that everything worked okay, and so followed everything that Yuri did, including stopping and urinating on that left back tire. That became a tradition in... um, the Soviet Union and now now that it's Russia to this day, where people who are going up into space with the Soviet or Russian program, whether or not they were cosmonauts, they could be American astronauts, it became this tradition to urinate on the left back tire on the way there. You might be wondering about women women would often bring a vial of urine with them to sprinkle on the left back tire. So this becomes, I guess you could call it a superstition, but it's also um, probably an enjoyable, fun bonding thing. And it also relieves some of that anxiety, knowing that you're following the successful steps that worked before. No, oh,
1: you're relieving more than that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we don't know that they are isn't a causal relationship That's now true. do we we don't <laughs> i mean have all of the uh, the uh, explorations have they been successful uh,
2: there have not been they haven't all been successful there have been a few um, soviet launches that didn't well launches mostly went well there was one time where the there was an oxygen link and some cosmonauts returning from space came down and it looked like a perfect landing and everybody had died of asphyxiation on the way down. Ah. Um, That was during the Apollo years. There was a recent uh, flight that was to go in 2018 that was aborted and then rescheduled. And the latest launch was sort of a rescheduling of that with a third person added. Um, I'm sure it doesn't guarantee success, But it certainly makes people feel better. And I will say that there are very similar things. I was touring uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in March, and there are a lot of superstitions and magical thinking that goes on there. For instance, peanuts. Apparently, eating peanuts, passing around peanuts is something that they do to assure success, and that's become a thing. And there's a lot of signage up about it, and a lot of discussion about peanuts. It's sort of their part of who they are as an entity.
1: Sure. And what about uh, overt religious gestures?
2: Um, in contemporary times or historically?
1: Historically, and up up until now, whatever whatever your research has indicated.
2: Well, what I'm finding is that a lot of times contemporary. Uh, um, I've interviewed. <laughs> Several sort of contemporary astronauts, um, most of them are retired, Um, some religious, some not. The ones that are religious have definitely included their religiosity as part of what they were doing in space. So, for instance, and I'm, not, I'm going to follow anthropological convention and not use real names, but one of the um, astronauts that I've interviewed, who I refer to as Tom in my research, he is an evangelical Christian astronaut, um, very religiously devout, definitely brought up Bibles with him, definitely read the Bible on a regular basis, and he ran a Sunday school in, in Houston, and was one of the teachers there. And when he was in the space station, he actually conducted Sunday school classes over the intercom or over the communication device um, with his students while he was orbiting space. Mm. And so I would say that's pretty overt.
1: That's pretty overt.
2: One of the more famous um, astronauts who has been sort of publicly on the record with this is Shannon Lucid, that's her real name. Um, she is an astronaut, retired now, who was born in a concentration camp. Her parents were missionaries, uh, Christian missionaries, during World War II, and they were captured and sent to a Chinese prison camp by the Japanese. And so she was born there, very strong evangelical tradition. When she went up into one of the earlier pre-international space station space stations, probably the Mir, with cosmonauts, she brought several tapes from her pastor that were intended on proselytizing to the cosmonauts.
1: How'd that go over?
2: I'm, I have not heard it from their perspective. <laughs> I found some articles from her hometown paper talking about how excited they were to be sending these up and the pastor encouraging them to, you know, follow God's word and and notice what the Bible's described about space and how the earth hangs in space. And, um I, I feel like it's kind of a closed space. If somebody's proselytizing to you, you can't really leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, but it's, yeah, it's maybe difficult. not. <laughs> You'd have to really want to leave. Um, but yeah, that there's there's some kind of overt um, religiosity. I, I'm curious yeah. if was
1: there, were there was there any diplomatic blowback? You know, you have these two governments working together, and. Uh, Did you ever read anything of any issues developing? I haven't.
2: I do know that during one of Shannon Lucid's—this isn't what you asked, but during one of Shannon Lucid's missions, and I'm trying to learn more about this, um, she was sent up with a Saudi Arabian prince who, his own particular cultural perspective— was not inclined to see her as an equal member of the crew, and she felt very strongly about that from what I was told and had to be very strongly convinced to go to Saudi Arabia to meet with his family after the mission was completed as sort of a ceremonial thing. She didn't want to go, Um, but she did. This is what I was told. So I'm doing some research into getting more records of that. I don't think there was as much concern... I think during the era when the Soviet Union um, was still the Soviet Union, there was more of a hands-off feeling. I think after the wall fell and religion sort of came back to Russia, there was definitely more of a sense that there was... It was okay to talk about religion again, and it was okay to bring up religion as a topic at that point. Sure. I remember
1: a Hindu woman, uh, a Hindu astronaut... And I, I know she did something religious. I't can did she bring Sunita like, Williams? Huh?
2: Was it Sunita Williams? Yeah. She, I know she brought a statue of Ganesh.: that, that with was her it. into space. Um, and she's the subject of another thing that I'm trying to learn more about, and I found this to be really fascinating. There is a persistent rumor on the Internet, especially um, in Islamic countries, that she converted to Islam while um, orbiting over Mecca. And she denies it. It's not something that she says happened. But it's interesting to see that that's the story that gets told. And I only found out, honestly, doing research yesterday, that there are similar rumors that Neil Armstrong converted to Islam <laughs> while in space. So I'm, I'm going to track down what this whole thing means, um, what the sort of belief in someone else's conversion because of, they, of them going into space And that was one of the things you mentioned was at the top that scientists don't tend to change their mind. I will say there have been several astronauts who've had conversion experiences or could be described as a deepening of their religion or a change in their religious perspective while they were in space.
1: Well, that's something we can talk about next week. Okay. So uh, uh, my last question is, the articles that you sent me, are they available to the public?
2: Um, I do have an Academia.edu page. So um, if you go to Academia.edu, it's a service where a lot of academics can upload their work. GVSU, I believe, has some access, but um, Academia.edu would probably be the place where most of my articles could be available for download. It's kind of open access. And
1: if anybody has any challenge navigating that, Uh, If you go to our website, interfaithdialogueassociation.org, and use that email address that's on our homepage, uh, we'll make sure that you, you get what you're looking for. Dina, it was great having you here, and I look forward to wrapping this up next week. Thank you so much, Fred. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Professor Dina Weibel has been my guest, and we will continue our conversation Next week, please join us here on
0: WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University.
1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation with Professor Dina Weibel about spirituality, space travel, and pilgrimage. A little bit about Professor Weibel, she's a cultural anthropologist right here at Grand Valley State University, whose work focuses primarily on religion, especially the topics of pilgrimage and sacred space. Her main fieldwork takes place in France at pilgrimage sites venerating the Virgin Mary. Other research interests include religious cognition and sacred objects, and the role of anthropology and her own family in the ethnological displays of Philippine tribal peoples at fairs and carnivals in the 1900s. She is an advising faculty member for the Grand Valley State University Religious Studies Program, and also A board member right here at the Interfaith Dialogue Association. We welcome once again to Common Threads, Dina Weibel. Hi, Dina. Hi, Fred. Thanks for joining us again. Sure. Um, So, last week we covered uh, various aspects of of, uh, space travel, spirituality. Let's talk about spirituality and um, spirituality, space travel, specifically as pilgrimage. Because pilgrimage is is really your thing. You've oh, done yeah. a lot of work on it. What's the corollary? How do you see space travel as pilgrimage?
2: We've only got a half hour, right? <laughs> um, first of all, if I want to define pilgrimage first, it is travel to a place that's considered sacred for religious purposes. And so a lot of things that we consider pilgrimage, um, It's it's very broad. So if I'm talking about the... Seekers of religious freedom who left England and settled in the American colonies, we'd call that pilgrimage because they were seeking religious freedom. Their travel was motivated by religion. Um, Obviously, some religions in the world are strongly associated with pilgrimage. So Muslims are required by um, the tenets of Islam to go to Mecca at least once in their life if they can afford it and if their health will allow it. Pilgrimage is really important in Hinduism. Um, Christians, especially Catholics, will go on pilgrimage, but the Holy Land is very important for Protestants as well. You'll have a lot of Protestant trips to the Holy Land. Going to Jerusalem is an important pilgrimage for Jews. And so, and Buddhists have amazing pilgrimages and different sites and different types of Buddhism. Um, but there are also secular pilgrimages. And so if you're a group of motorcycle guys who get on your bikes and go to the Vietnam Memorial, you're going to a sacred place for spiritual reasons. There's something about that that's meaningful to you. So pilgrimage is a very wide um, descriptor. And one thing that I've noticed studying space travel is that a lot of the Things that are done in pilgrimage are also done in space travel. And one way to think about this is to think about objects. Religious objects are really important in pilgrimage. And I've noticed there are three major categories. If you go on pilgrimage, often you will bring something back with you. And if you bring that thing back with you, it almost like holds the, the essence of the pilgrimage with it. So if I go to Lourdes in France and there's water there that is purported to have healing powers, I might bring back containers of water for my family members. And that is like taking the essence of Lourdes back with you. Um, And people do that with the Zamzam water in Mecca and also with water from the Ganges. That water sort of retains that essence. A second category of object is what anthropologists call an ex-photo it means after the vow it is an object that you leave at a site to show that you made that pilgrimage and i see that a lot in catholic pilgrimage where people will leave photographs of their loved ones or in the american southwest um, milagros which are little tin or aluminum representations of the human body so if my grandfather is having a heart problem i might leave a little milagro of a heart at a pilgrimage site say in Chimayo in New Mexico, for instance, Um, leaving these objects behind to show that you've been there, that the vow has been completed. The third type is one that I've noticed a lot in my research that less has been written about, which is objects that are transformed. So um, you see this a lot in neo-pagan pilgrimage, for instance, where somebody might go to Walsingham or uh, Stonehenge and bring a favorite piece of jewelry with them and take it there so that it can sort of be in the place and be transformed in some way and then be brought back. And then that object contains some special reverence. It has a memory associated with it or in some language that's used religiously, energy associated with it. Um, Often there's a discussion of charging jewelry or charging religious figurines in sacred places. What I've noticed with going to the moon, for instance, which is the only place we've been that's not a man-made place, you know, um, is that those same three things happen. So moon rocks um, are the only thing we've brought back from the moon, but a lot of people will respond with great reverence to moon rocks. Um, I, one of... um, I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to have somebody I knew check out moon rocks from NASA, brought them to a class and passed them around. And for some of the students, that was just very close to a religious experience, if not on the border of a religious experience. Um, my own wedding ring has a little chip of lunar meteorite in it. Really? Yeah. And Martian meteorite, too. So a little piece of the moon, and a little piece of Mars. Um, You can get meteorites because they land on Earth. So it's not like you have to go and get them, but they still kind of have that essence of the planet. So bringing stuff back from the moon. Second category, leaving stuff on the moon. We left a lot of stuff that was just junk, you know, like, oh, we need to get rid of these bags of human waste or whatever. Um, But a lot of things that were left there were left with great significance. So one of the lunar rovers has a red Bible sitting on it. The Bible's probably not red anymore with all that exposure to sunlight, but it's still there. It hasn't been disturbed. Um, A lot of the astronauts um, who went to the moon left photos of their family, which is exactly what I see on pilgrimage. The idea that I'm here, I made it, I'm leaving this as a marker that I'm here. There was a very small statue known as the fallen astronaut, which was left, I believe, without NASA's permission on the moon to sort of mark the people who had died um, as part of the space race, both astronauts and cosmonauts, and to sort of honor them with leaving something for them on the moon. And not to give spoilers, but if anybody has seen the movie First Man, the Ryan Gosling biopic about Neil Armstrong, there's a scene where something is left on the moon that's clear; it's supposed to have a a strong spiritual association. The third category is the most interesting, I find, taking things to the moon or taking things to space and bringing them back. There's a whole category of objects you can buy on eBay that are space flown objects. Oh, really? Yes. And these objects are things that have been into space and brought back and they carry more value than anything. You might have an amazing piece of NASA, an artifact from NASA that was important to the Apollo program. But if that has been in space, it it that is something that stays with it. And um, astronauts have frequently been asked to bring things into space, even during the Apollo program, um, j- jewelry from their wives and, and different objects for people, religious objects into space. And, um, those objects remain important, like one example, if I can mm-hmm. um Buzz Aldrin famously took communion on the moon um soon after the um, eagle landed on the moon. So there was this sort of moment of silence, and during that moment of silence, Aldrin, who was a Presbyterian, went to Webster Church in um outside of Houston. He had this little chalice, and he also had um, some communion wine that his pastor had sent with him. And he poured the wine in from a very small kind of envelope into this chalice and actually took communion on the moon. At chalice is on display at the Webster Church now. Mm. And so it's a famous historical thing because it was... You know, the first, it's a lot of things, but part of what its allure is is that it's been on the moon. So it is a communion chalice that was, first of all, the first food ever consumed on the moon was communion. And this chalice was there and it was part of that. So this maintains almost relic like status. And because of those three categories and because of the amount of religious activity that has been associated, especially with the moon landings. I definitely think um, it can be understood as a type of pilgrimage, going to the moon.
1: I can easily see that, Mm -hmm. certainly. One of the reasons that you and I are talking right now is because we are at the time of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Yes. Uh, And I know that you have done a significant amount of research into the Apollo program Mm -hmm. and the The spiritual backdrop of the astronauts and all of that.
2: Just
1: could you just address that in general?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the important things to keep in mind was because our rivals in the race to the moon was were the Soviets, and they were an officially atheistic state, Part of what defined America vis-a-vis the Soviets was the religiousness of America. This was a God-fearing country. We weren't godless like the quote-unquote commies. And so it was this battle between those who were ordained by God and those who didn't believe in God. And that was a huge motivating factor for the American space program. I won't say it motivated everyone, but I have seen documents where NASA got the religious backgrounds of every one of the astronauts, probably for last rights type purposes. And the vast majority of them, vast majority of them were Christian with just a couple no preferences sprinkled here and there. And because of that, um, it became... A success for, I actually recently interviewed a tech who worked on Apollo 11, and he straight out believes that we won the moon race because God was on our side. And so he was there at the time, he was very young, um, but that idea that we were doing something ordained by God and God was on our side, getting us to the moon ahead of our enemies who didn't believe in God, was a very strong kind of narrative structure. At the time, um, Apollo eight was the first mission that actually went to the moon, even though they didn't do a landing, they orbited the moon and came back and the three men on board Apollo 11, um, I'm not going to go through their names because it's escaping my mind right now, although I can see all their faces. Um, They wanted to mark the occasion with something special. And so it was Christmas Eve 1968. And they read from the book of Genesis describing the creation of the earth while looking at the earth from outside. Um, And this was something that was tremendously moving to a lot of people. Obviously, Genesis is important in a lot of religions, not just Christianity, obviously Judaism, but Islam as well. And it was meant to be a strong um, recognition and um, expression of gratitude that they had been able to do this. Um, there was blowback. You might know that Madeline Murray O'Hare of American That's Atheists right. actually I that. sued NASA over it. Um, And after that, NASA did try to sort of tamp down overt expressions of religion because of the issue of the separation of church and state. But that didn't stop the astronauts themselves from being religious. Um, Quite a few astronauts had what can be described as conversion experiences. Um, Several of them wrote about them famously. Jim Irwin is a really good example. He was on Apollo 15. He claims that it strengthened his faith After he left NASA, he got very involved in religion. Um, I believe his organization was called Higher Calling, something like that. And he looked for Noah's Ark, spent quite a lot of time in um, the mountains of Turkey looking for evidence of Noah's Ark. Did he find it? Not that I'm aware of.
1: Can I just interrupt briefly to remind people that you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella and Professor Dina weibel from here at Grand Valley State University, is our guest. And we're talking about spirituality, pilgrimage, and space travel. So continue. Uh, let's, let's talk about uh, Mr. Mitchell.
2: Ah, Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell was an interesting case. Um, I have interviewed one of the Apollo astronauts who knew him. Um, Edgar Mitchell, unfortunately, passed just a year or so ago. But um, he was a unique individual, and one of the things that he did while he was on his mission was conduct um, experiments involving ESP while he was in space. So he had those cards, you know, with the wavy lines or the star or the other symbols on them and was trying to do sort of psychic readings with somebody else who I believe was in the San Francisco area at the time.
1: I, I, I'm sorry, he, he just assumed that, or, or guessed maybe because he's in space that his powers would be amplified? Something like that. Okay. I think
2: it was just, when else are you going to get the opportunity to try it? <laughs> right. But he had a very strong spiritual moment traveling in space where he felt connected to the universe in a way that he had never felt before. Um, He describes it in some of his writings. He's got a couple books out and it was like this sense that the entire universe was one thing that he was part of the universe, that everything was connected to each other and that he was being given this information from the universe while he was out there. Um, And, He founded something afterwards called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So the idea being that you can get knowledge from different sources. One source, he thought, was empirical knowledge, right? So you can do research, you can look at something, you can use your senses. But he felt also that knowledge that was true knowledge could come to you. And that what had happened to him while he was in space was an example of that knowledge that just came to you, which he called noesis. And so the Institute of Noetic Sciences was really to explore that kind of knowledge that's obtained through non-empirical methods. Um, very interesting person. I would have loved to have interviewed him. I never got the opportunity.
1: Now, in your article, you refer to that experience as samadhi. You, that was his term. Are you term. quoting it? That's his term. That's his term. Now, now, that is, I know it's a Hindu term. It also may be a Buddhist term uh and I'm just uh, concerned not concerned but I'm I'm curious uh, did he like convert to one of those Eastern religions?
2: I don't believe so but I do believe they were a strong influence I think um this was, as I'm sure you know, late 60s, early 70s, there was a very strong um, influence Mm -hmm. of Eastern religions in the United States at this time. And we see things in other religions, for instance, in Wicca and New Age, karma has become a term that's a very typical kind of thing. So there's a lot of borrowing during that time period. My guess is that when he described it, he probably had interactions with religious leaders from Hinduism who... Tried to help him understand it in terms that made sense.
1: Do we know? Do we know uh, what his proclivity was prior to liftoff?
2: I don't think he was particularly religious. Okay. Um, I think he was very curious about what the human mind was capable of, but these were sort of strong driving interests that I think were separate from any traditional religious upbringing.
1: And and you spoke to Tom Calvin.
2: Tom Calvin is a pseudonym for an astronaut who was right. not in space during the Apollo program, but active during the Apollo program on the ground.
1: And and what was his reaction when you Oh uh, <laughs> well the
2: astronaut I referred to as Tom Calvin, um he's a self described evangelical. And when I asked him about Edgar Mitchell's experience in space, he said something like, Well, he he thought he felt something. It was very dismissive, I will say. Um, but that makes sense because that kind of thing is not part of his religious tradition.
1: right. And speaking of uh, of that, you you've spoken to and did research on various viewpoints from the evangelical uh, uh, stance mm-hmm. right and And so some people am I correct in reading that some people, were actually opposed to space travel coming from that background.
2: Um certainly not among the astronauts but No, no, not the astronauts. Right. No. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a political scientist I know at the University of Dayton, Joshua Ambrosius. And he, has, he does a lot of heavy work with data and statistics and numbers. And he's pulled some of the numbers from Pew studies. And he's very interested in the fact that of the different religious groups that they surveyed about space travel, evangelical Christians tended to be the least supportive. And part of the reason for that is if you believe is that Jesus is coming in the near future, there's no real reason to go into space. It's not a priority. Um, On the other hand, other religions are much more willing to assume there's a future that needs to happen and to be interested in moving forward into that future. That said, a lot of the, there are evangelical um, astronauts for sure, for sure. And so these are people who do think that it's worthwhile to travel into space. So it's not, we can't paint an entire group with one brush.
1: No, no, certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, what do you see happening in the near future with uh, with the astronauts who are coming up now? Uh, I, I say this because there seems to be a, um, a diminishment of, of religious adherence.
2: Well, um, interestingly, and I can't guarantee that these folks are going to end up in the astronaut program, but there's definitely interest in becoming an astronaut among some very religious people. Um, so last week I mentioned that I'd been to the NASA Human Research Investigators Program Workshop in Galveston, Texas, and I did interviews with two young women there who both want to become astronauts or planning to apply. Both of them are working on their PhDs. One was a very devout Muslim. Um, she covered, and she was there at the conference um, in hijab, and she very strongly had this was her dream was to be an astronaut and she was telling me about verses uh surahs in the quran that she interpreted as encouraging humans to go into space we talked about the modesty afforded by uh, spacesuits and how you know you can't really tell anything so she felt that a spacesuit was good i said "Well, what about hijab would you be in space covered?" she said she couldn't see why she boxes well in hijab Mm. so she i think i think her profile if she applies to nasa she's going to be a very interesting candidate another young woman i spoke to was studying a lot of uh sort of evolutionary um human adaptation kind of things and she was a very devout um hindu from a brahmanic tradition um, strong vedantic background and so her understanding of religion was something very akin to science, and there was a strong overlap. And she talked with me about how her family members were required through history to be both scientists as Brahmins and do rituals and to combine religion and science in a way that was totally natural to her. And so for her, she felt that it was her dharma to go into space. That was the term she used. And so when I see examples of very religious young people who are planning to apply to the astronaut program, who want their whole life to be about this, but bring their religion in as just a matter of course, I don't think that it's really going anywhere. I think I think when people work for NASA, it's very important to present yourself in a certain way and if there are topics that might be controversial to avoid those topics but talking to people pre-nasa and retired astronauts there's a lot of religiosity that's there it's just not necessarily overt while they are astronauts
1: i'm not sure i understand what you say That certain topics shouldn't be brought up
2: well for instance if a contemporary astronaut who was not retired Um, were to make some statement about such and such religion being true or such religion being false. That Uh might be something that would bring negative attention to NASA. So there's this need to make sure that you're, you know, the, the one contemporary astronaut, like current astronaut I interviewed, wouldn't talk to me about religion at all. And this person instead was talking about the importance of being a team player and a lot of information that was the kind of thing you would find in NASA publicity materials. So, mm. not straying from the official um, focus.
1: And by not talking about religion, mm-hmm. you didn't get the impression that this person was not necessarily religious or.
2: N- no, just that that person felt that they were not willing to risk a future flight on saying something that might be taken out of context that might be controversial.
1: I understand. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about about rituals uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and the importance of them. And oftentimes we think of rituals as outside of science. but in in what I've read of yours, there actually can be scientifically, I'll use the word proven benefit of of ritual, regardless of the religion or, or lack thereof religion, just the performing performing them, By themselves?
2: Certainly there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there are health benefits from belonging to a religious community. Um, Religious rituals it's very clear, reduce stress in a lot of cases. They can help um, with situations like coping. One of the interesting things is that people who are regular um, attendees of religious services have better health outcomes. And they think that it's in part because you have a weekly gathering where people know if you're not feeling well, people see if you don't show up. So it's that community created by the religious background. Um, It's, but once again, I cannot rule out that there isn't a benefit from religiosity and performing rituals. That is something that science has not yet discovered.
1: We understand. Um, I want to end the same way we did last week, which is encouraging people who would like to learn more about your research, which, uh, okay, I'm biased. Uh, you're a longtime colleague, and I love your work, but but it, it is very readable uh, uh, to the uh, uneducated, including myself, Uh, and uh, uh, if somebody does want to get a hold of this, what is that website you gave us last week?
2: There is a website where you can get a lot of interesting stuff called Academia Edu. Um, It is a site where you can put in a researcher's name or a topic, and it's a place where people who are in the academic fields can upload or Upload um, articles and also down article download articles. You don't have to be a member to be able to have access to people's information there. And I have several articles on my page, so if they type in my name, they should be able to find it.
1: Wonderful, and that's Dina D E A N A, and Weibel is W E I B E L. And I also mentioned last week that if you are driving and you just can't retain all this information, very easily go to our website, interfaithdialogueassociation.org, and email us from there, and we'll make sure that you get what you're looking for. Dina, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. Certainly, last week as well. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Dina Weibel has been our guest today. Please join us again next week right here on Common Threads.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University.